Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. It was an opportunity to portray Navarro in a conflict with who she is. These are her people, and she is sent there to control them, but she believes in what they're fighting for. There's sort of a slow burn of uncovering not only the hardships of a marginalized community that's being toxically polluted by a mine, but the corruption with the corporation and law enforcement. I'm Alice Kanik Glenn, an Inupiaq writer, podcaster, and activist from Utkervik, Alaska, and this is the True Detective Night Country podcast. As the Night Country saga is coming to a dramatic close, we're witnessing the deep-seated corruption in Ennis unravel. The veil between good and evil feels brittily thin. As a reminder, if you haven't watched part five of the series, I recommend doing so before listening to this podcast, as we will be discussing some spoilers. This next chapter brings us back into the lives of our detectives as their inner turmoil continues to churn. Navarro, still battered from the loss of Julia, now faces the prospects of life without her. Danvers, with Otis having come down from a high, takes to questioning him for answers. What else did he say? She's awake. She's awake. Said that a bunch of times. He said, I have to hide. She's out there. The community is standing strong in opposition to the mine. As a protest breaks out, violence ensues. Navarro arrives with other troopers to tame the scene. Let him go! Let him go now! Get down! It's soon revealed that there's a secret connection between the mine and the Salal Research Lab. It points to a complex web of corruption. The mine bankrolls Salal, and then Salal pushes out bogus pollution numbers for him. It's definitely possible. The abuse of power by the mine and law enforcement leave the community of Ennis wondering, can those in authority be trusted? Are they now tasked to fight for justice? So after everything they learned about themselves in episode four, the forces of the conflict happening in town, the case, the conflict with the mine, are going to catch up with them. As part four escalates in dramatic fashion, Danvers and Navarro find themselves face-to-face with the forces that have been pursuing them. And now, in part five, we are front and center as the fallout from the chaos unfolds. So this deep dive that they took into their personal lives has to be brutally interrupted with the big eruption of the real world. Politics, intrigue, murder, plots, secrets between them, personal revenges and the tension that will pull our two main characters apart will all come in play in episode five. And it will explode in their faces with an ending that none of those characters could have ever expected to see in their lives. 
Right out of the gate, part five drops us into the unrest brewing at the mine. The anti-mine activists have gathered for a peaceful protest, but angst is growing. Those defending the mine resort to using violence against the protesters. It's a climactic scene tense with emotion. Issa vividly remembers the planning it took to shoot this scene. It was not the coldest day we had, but like the third coldest day we had. We had a huge amount of background performers and artists that came, a lot of them from Alaska, a lot of them from Canada, a lot of them from Greenland and Denmark, to get a group of mostly Inuit faces and voices involved in that. So we had to direct them, some of them in Danish and some of them in English, and they had to translate to each other. But they were so brave and so much better in the cold than us, and so excited to be there, you know, just protesting and being so incredibly beautifully energetic. You know, it was a whole thing to have this training for several days with our stunt coordinator to create the fights and the pulling and pushing and the energy and me working with them to get the right level of energy that we needed, you know, to get them up there. And they were incredible. They were amazing. But we had a crane and two handheld cameras, stunt moments. We had to make it look like we were really, really hurting Leah, who was incredible at it. Navarro moving in between the crowd and kicking us into it. And um, security guards coming from the mine. It was complicated. But I'm very, very happy with, with the final result. As the protesting starts, the townspeople gather. Many of them are members of the indigenous community. They are peaceful yet resolute. They raise their voices against the impact the mine is having, demanding change. The power of the scene overtakes you. In talking with Isa, she shares it's not unlike the countless scenes of protest we see in our own world. Well, it's an interesting thing because the truth of the matter is most, if not all, of the environmental protests by Native communities are peaceful. And it's very important to say that this one turns violent, not because of the protesters, but because of the security at the mine. We did talk to a lot of environmental activists. Many of the Inuit people we talked to are indigenous environmental activists. They were very keen and we were careful that those are passive, peaceful protests. So when the riot starts, it's not because they started. It's because one of the guards, the security guards of the mine, loses his patient and starts punching people. And then it goes south. And lately we've seen a lot of climate activism that is getting louder, let's call it. I do believe that things are going to get a lot tougher before they get better if they get better. How will it all end? Will change come as a result of the chaos? Amidst the violence of the protests, our detectives find themselves front and center. Kaylee Reese zeroes in on how Navarro is left processing her inner conflict. That seems really interesting. That's what you see for the first time, Navarro really questioning her position. Like, what, what am I doing here? Like, this is way beyond me putting on this uniform. This, this is a, a real crisis here with what's going on in the villages. And these people are protesting for a reason. And you really see her start just looking around her like, what am, what am I really doing here? This isn't where I need to be. I need to be on the other side. Like, I need to be fighting with my people, not against them. So it's a really 
peculiar place for Navarro. This is kind of the first time you also see her a little bit disoriented. Usually Navarro knows exactly where to go, what to do, what to say, whether it's intuitive or it's uh, like a militant, this is the rule, this is what you have to do. You don't, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know who to go after. Her instincts as, you know, a police officer kick in a bit, but it's like, what am I doing? And I think in that aspect, that's why she sees Annie Kay. It's like, that's the answer. You're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong side. You need to be fighting with your people. It was an opportunity to portray Navarro in a conflict with who she is. She's a cop, and she needs to go here and stop the people that are her people and that are standing for the things that she believes in. And we see that in Latin America every day with the police force and the military forces in Latin America are people with the smallest resources in the country and then they end up fighting their own people. So I thought it was a fascinating thing to see. Navarro's conflict is much deeper than her personal and professional lives being pitted against each other. It's an inward struggle about who she really is, what she really believes in, and if she will rise up with the indigenous community she identifies with. What the fuck were you doing there? What the fuck were you doing there? I mean, whose side are you on? You know, and I've seen this in Latin America many, many times over, that brother has to go against brother or sister against sister. These are her people. Even though she has lost that connection, she still understands and sees these people as her people. And she is sent there to control them, but uh, she believes in what they're fighting for. So her job is forcing her to push her people back while they're trying to stand for something she believes in. So it's very, very difficult for her. And Leah calls her on that. She won't let her walk away from what just happened. And this is happening at the same time that Navarro is mourning the death of Julia. So it's not an easy moment for her. As the series has progressed, we've seen how Navarro and Leah's relationship has transformed. Deep down, they recognize they share a connection through Danvers that transcends their commonality as indigenous women. She understands what she's going through dealing with Danvers. Like, she's like, I really feel bad for you having to deal with her and you have her as a stepmom. Like, that sucks. So she sucks as a friend and a boss. Like, I can't even imagine you having her as a mom. And she knows that Danvers is so culturally blind. She really has sympathy for her going through that. Even though she's not around, she has like a big sister um, relationship with Leah, which I, I really think is awesome. And I think when Leah starts to rebel against Danvers, she's probably like, yeah, you give it to Danvers because she needs that. Like, this isn't Danvers' world and we just don't orbit around Danvers. And the fact that it's her own daughter giving it to her, I, Navarro's like, thank God, because somebody needs to put, like, a foot up her ass. And then Leah does that. So I believe that Navarro's, like, biggest cheerleader for that. And she has, like, this big sister type of attitude. I could imagine, too, that Navarro has been there and knows Leah since she's been a little kid when Danvers and her were on good terms. So she's watched her grow up. It's like, that's her little, like, niece or little sister. Even when she's cussing her out in the truck, like, what, what were you doing, man? Like, come on, man. I'm not going to bring you in, but your mom's being an a-hole and I have to kind of a thing. I actually really like their whole relationship. It's kind of cute. Leah emerges as a defender of her community. 
She's found her voice and she's using it to call out the injustice she sees. While Leah's bond with Navarro is strengthened, the wedge is driven deeper between her and Danvers. I was curious if Jody, who is a mother herself, resonated with the tension Danvers is feeling. I think that Leah acting out or becoming a person, becoming an individual, seeking freedom to make choices, um, that's always going to come in conflict with your parents. And in this case, Leah is trying on something that Danvers sees as dangerous, getting involved with the mine protesters. She told her not to, and Leah did it anyway. She did it behind her back. I think that feels like a situation that we've probably as parents been in a few times. Uh, it feels pretty garden variety. Danvers is just trying to keep her safe and her daughter keeps going behind her back, getting into trouble. Episode five is the most tragic in the kind of Greek tragedy sense of the word, where the families fall apart and the families are tested and the allegiances are tested and there's a lot of it feels like destiny or fate. With the final chapter of the series still to come, the larger narrative begins to take shape. The more we learn, the more clarity we gain around what's really happening in Ennis. Executive producer Mary Jo offers her thoughts. When people ask me what is True Detective about, I sort of say, look, it's a, it's a murder thriller about two female detectives solving a crime in the high Arctic of Alaska centered around a research facility that's tangential to a mine that is toxically polluting an indigenous community. And there is the disappearance of the scientists that is linked to a cold case that involves a missing and murdered indigenous woman. And when you sort of unpack that, it's like, wow, that is a lot to take in. There's sort of a slow burn of uncovering not only the hardships of a marginalized community that's being toxically polluted by a mine, but the corruption with the corporation and law enforcement. And then also the fact that there's stillbirths and cancer. And we know that those things are directly related to the toxicity of the mine and what's going into the soil and into the water. It's sort of like big bad corporation comes in and steals the land and makes a lot of money and doesn't take care of the people who are very marginalized in those communities. Tensions have been mounting in Ennis, and as the spotlight is placed on the mine, the secrets lurking in the shadows are now revealed. A sinister link between the mine and the Salal lab is finally brought into the open, exposing the layers of corruption. Now we know for sure that the mine was financing Salal. And Salal was in turn turning numbers that backed the numbers that the mine was providing about the levels of pollution that it was creating, which seems to point to the fact that probably those pollution levels were way higher than what everyone believed, which is, if you look at the environment and what's happening in Ennis, it makes sense. We also know that the mine, centered on the character of Kate McKintrick, knows about Annie's death and where she died. And it's in the interest of the mind for some reason that that place is not discovered by the police. And we also learned that Kate paid Hank Pryor to get rid of the body. And we learned very late in the episode that Hank didn't kill her, or at least that's what he says. As the pieces fall, another casualty of the protest reveals itself. 
the compounding struggle between Danvers, Hank, and Pryor surfaces. As father and son face off, things take a sharp downward turn towards a resolution no one saw coming. Issa shares that this storyline was a complicated one to get right. Well, I knew from the very beginning that Hank needed to die. In the earlier treatment of the series, we switched between Danvers kills him and then no Navarro kills him. And then the decision of making it prior came to me. And it was super interesting because otherwise the arc of prior is never going to be complete. You know, it's he's just, you know, this cute young man that delivers information to Danvers. And this was a perfect way to give a true coming of age of the darkest kind to Pryor. But how was I going to pull the trick of getting Pryor to pull that trigger in a believable way? And that took a lot of work. I think I wrote it like four times. And then Chris Mondi, who was working with me at that point, came and we were in a room together just throwing ideas at each other forever to try to make it believable, you know? It was like, I know Pryor has to kill him, but it it was not believable. And then finally we got to a part where it was kind of okay. Chris took it and wrote the scene, and he wrote a really good first template of this new incarnation of the scene. And I sent it out to the actors, and, and I really liked it. But we sat together on a Saturday afternoon in Reykjavik, me and Finn Bennett, who plays Pryor, and Jody. And Kaylee and all of us started to spitball and stand up and play with it. And then finally we threw lines out until it was the bare minimum. And we ended up with a version that really worked for us. And in the case of Briar was very interesting because, you know, he's a terrible father that has been not nurturing, not loving, at times even violent and has a life full of secrets that his son doesn't understand. And when the final decision comes and he sees in Peter's eyes that Danvers has won, that he's lost his son forever, he raises the gun to Danvers knowing he's going to die. And if you look carefully, you will see that his finger is not on the trigger. It's truly an act of surrender to the fact that he's done with life and his son is going to kill him. Even in that action, he screws Peter. Even in that final action of surrender, he's screwing Peter. He's going to have to carry, now Briar is going to have to carry with this death for the rest of his life. Briar, don't think about it. Come on, I need your help, son. Briar. Help me. The protests at the mine and the violence that ensues are a result of two polarizing forces clashing. Those who have the responsibility to use their resources and influence to better the community and those who are crying out against the hypocrisy they are seeing. It's a clarion call to take action against injustice. This idea of the community fighting and striving for change was a crucial through line in Issa's narrative. That's our most important, the most central mission the sole mission that we all carry. What I tell to young people is, look at the world, and it's very broken, and there's so many causes that keeps us awake at night, right? So pick one, because you're not going to be able to fix the entire world. Pick one that is the one that is closest to your heart and fight for that one. 
You know, we have what's happening to women around the world. We have the impact of the environment. We have the stealing of these traditions from the native communities. But at some point, pick one that you really care about. Learn more about it and get involved. Stand up, get involved. The protests at the mine are set in a fictional world of Ennis, but they are a glimpse into the unrest that Alaskans have in our own fight for basic justice. When violent crimes are committed, victims should have the confidence that authorities are following through on their responsibility to protect and serve. When that doesn't happen, the hope is that others will shine a light on these injustices and advocate for change. I'm a reporter for the Anchorage Daily News and for the nonprofit newsroom ProPublica. And I primarily these days cover failures in the Alaska criminal justice system. This is Kyle Hopkins, a journalist from Alaska. For a lot of his career, Kyle has investigated and documented the shortcomings of the institutions that are designed to protect the people of Alaska. When we talk about criminal justice in the state, in Alaska, and the failure to just live up to really basic promises to just deliver public safety to every citizen, one of the ways that that's failing is there literally is no local law enforcement in like a third of communities. And so this place is not like other places in the United States. There's no question that Alaska's expansive and remote landscape make policing more challenging. But through his reporting, Kyle has questioned the way that serious crimes are documented by law enforcement and prosecuted by local authorities. His work is called The Lawless Project, and it struck a chord with local communities. That was never intended to be a story about a lack of law enforcement. If anything, I was really interested in talking about the way that the courts fail. But people really reacted to this idea that like, hey, we've so fallen down on our basic promises to provide public safety in Alaska that we don't even bother to put public safety servants in a third of our communities. I find that when I'm trying to frame a new story or think about how do I put together a story that is going to resonate with people and have some type of impact, a lot of it is like following just personal outrage. When someone tells you about their experience going to the police department and reporting a a violent crime and that the police just didn't take a report, didn't make an investigation. Maybe that police officer is related to or like friends with the person who's being accused that the police chief, you know, sees it as just, you know, a byproduct of living in Alaska and that we should just accept that there's violence here. And that's part of, you know, the price of admission of living in this beautiful place. You know, that's just so unacceptable. And the systems are so broken that the more you learn about how cases play out and how they're prosecuted and how the police respond, the more you feel like that's outrageous. Violent crimes are a major issue here. So any breakdown in reporting and follow through by law enforcement would only compound the problem. Kyle's reporting has caused many to ask themselves if there's been a blind spot in the approach to policing rural Alaskan communities. I think like best practices of like local policing and community policing and like where that's trying to move and what people think is a, you know, are the best practices for police departments to kind of have police being part of the community and invested in the community. And like in Alaska, it's it's the opposite. I, I feel like in Alaska, we're really, one of our big mistakes is we are just constantly punishing witnesses and victims for symptoms of like intergenerational trauma that like 
it's just fucking crazy. We just kind of turn a blind eye to bona fide witnesses because police are like, well, I don't really like that person because I've dealt with them in some other capacity. It all warrants conversations about how reform may be found. But we also need to be cautious about overgeneralizing. Some public servants understand the responsibility they have to serve their communities. In her time with the Alaska State Troopers, Detective Ann Sears sympathized with the victims and their fight for justice. There's a reason why they say the wheels of justice turn slowly. (laughs) I couldn't even imagine being a victim. I mean, first of all, even just having to talk to law enforcement and tell law enforcement what happened and then going through, you know, a forensic exam to collect evidence off of your body, off of your person, just the indignity of that, you know, and then as law enforcement, I still have to do my job and, you know, collect evidence at the scene, go and talk to the suspect, get a statement from them, maybe get evidence from them if I can get a search warrant for their person and then take that all back, type that all up. And, you know, if I've arrested somebody, then that starts the clock, right? It's a very, very slow process and I could not imagine being a victim. And then it does go to court. A victim does get her day or his day in court. It breaks my heart what I have seen a victim have to go through to tell a jury, to tell 12 strangers what happened to you out loud. Not to mention defendant is sitting there, defense is sitting there, I'm sitting there. It is not for the faint of heart. Alaska is expansive, but we have a strong sense of unity. After decades on the force, Anne believes that Alaskans can turn a new page in the fight to make our state safer. Every community is on the front lines of helping to bring the change we're looking for. I probably couldn't have done a lot of my work without friends or family or acquaintances helping out. I mean, there's a lot of cases that I would not have been able to do without those folks helping. I mean, I judges, law enforcement, all that were like, we're at the end result of anybody getting arrested or charged. You know, for any kind of solution, it's going to start, you know, with the community. With all of the issues of violence and crime that we see in our communities, many believe that we need to look for solutions that reinstate trust in the authorities designed to serve and protect us. Many Alaskans have lost faith in the justice system because of the inaction they see when crimes are committed. Historically, Alaska Native communities were self-policing. For thousands of years, Native villages in Alaska had effective peacekeeping systems set in place. Justice in communities was based on traditional indigenous values. Restorative justice focused on guiding offenders back to love, honor, and responsibility. And if that didn't work, they were kicked out of the village or even punished by death. When Alaska became a state in 1959, these mechanisms were dismantled and the state assumed responsibility for law enforcement. This rendered Alaska Native communities dependent on inadequate law enforcement services provided by the state. It's resulted in a gap that has been difficult to fill. But some of our communities have taken the responsibility back by implementing a village public safety officer program, which helps improve response time to crimes in rural areas. Many of these communities are trained in fire protection, emergency medical assistance, law enforcement, community policing, crime prevention, and search and rescue. 
helping to restore the faith in systems intended to keep Alaska safe. Unfortunate circumstances pit Ennis officers against one another as part five comes to a close. Okay, we can fix this. Turn my kid against me. We can't fix that, can we? Hank suspiciously arrives at Danvers, ordering to bring Otis in. Instead, he kills Otis in cold blood, an effort to stop Danvers from investigating the case any further. Pryor then arrives and Hank makes a confession about Annie Kay's murder. You should know something. I didn't kill Annie Kay, I just moved her body. Father and son are now in opposition with a heated outcome. Blood is blood, Peter. Remember that. No! It's a little bit Greek tragedy, Shakespearean stuff in the end, you know, that the young hero cannot become the man unless he truly kills his father, you know? It sounds terrible, but it's in the end, it's very archetypical of the stuff we carry. With Hank dead, Danvers weighs the risks of telling Connolly the truth. If he's also behind the Salal cover-up, then who can she trust? When Navarro arrives, she argues that their window to solve the case is narrowing. Our detectives drive into the dark night and route to the ice caves. What will they find? That's next time on the final episode of the official True Detective Night Country podcast. I think that Perhaps the most important thing is that I want to leave at the end with this is the possibility of light. It's a show that is about the night and the night ending and what is on the other side and how characters at that point are looking at the sun and the horizon. True Detective Night Country podcast is produced by Tenderfoot Labs for HBO. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts and stream True Detective Night Country exclusively on Max. We'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment to share your thoughts on the show. 